Hey there, land investors. Have you been looking for a way to turn your money faster? Well, now there's a way to sell your land notes faster than ever before. You can get access to thousands of note investors who are actively searching for quality land notes at paperstack.com. That's paperstack, but without the K at the end. If you've got any outstanding land notes with interest rates over 8% and at least three months of seasoning, you're going to get some bids and you don't have to take my word for it. Josh Brooks is a member of the RE Tipster Club and a fellow land investor, and he sold six land notes on Paperstack. The closing process was really easy and he had multiple bids. If you're looking to sell your land notes for a decent price, check out paperstack.com. And if you've never sold a note before and you're not sure about how the process works, no problem. This is new territory for a lot of people. Paperstack will walk you through every step of the closing, making sure you don't miss a critical step in your sales process. All the documents are generated by the software and it's free to list, so you've really got nothing to lose. Recapitalize faster with paperstack.com. That's P-A-P-E-R-S-T-A-C.com. Hey, everybody, how's it going? This is Seth Williams from retipster.com. Today, I'm talking with my friend, Mike Marshall, about land entitlements. Believe it or not, I didn't know hardly anything about the concept of getting entitlements until about a year ago, because for most of my land investing career, I'd never really done anything with any of the vacant lots I flipped. I just bought them for really cheap, did nothing to them, and then turned around and resold them for a higher price. And that's all good and fine. And there's certainly some advantages to taking that approach. But what if you do want to develop your land, or even if you don't want to develop it yourself, but you want to obtain all the necessary approvals from the local government so that the next guy can start developing it. And this is called the entitlement process. And land entitlement is a legal process where a real estate developer or landowner can obtain approval from the local governing body for their development plans. And when a property receives its entitlements, even if you don't end up developing that property. It brings certainty to the equation. So you know a property can be used for a specific purpose and developed in a certain way. So you know the next person doesn't have to buy the property wondering if they'll be able to use it for their intended purpose. If you can get it there for them, it can really make an impact on the value of it and even just the marketability of it. I'm talking with Mike Marshall because he's an expert in this stuff with about 20 years of experience in this whole land entitlement space. He knows all about how to get entitlements that add value to a property without ever having to touch it. Whether it's subdivisions or changing the use permits or zoning changes or a full-scale development, any of that kind of thing, Mike knows how to help investors navigate the regulatory waters on their pathway towards entitlement approval. So Mike, welcome. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's just start from the very beginning. What are some examples of when land entitlements would be required? Like, is this just for building a new building or when does this kind of thing come into play? Sure. You know, in general, people think of entitlements, you're really kind of associating it with physical development of some kind of the property. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say though, at the beginning that you know, every jurisdiction is different. And so not every jurisdiction will require entitlements for the exact same process or the exact same request. So it does vary across the landscape, but there is some general commonalities. Kind of most basic end 
If you want to just have an existing lot and you want to build a single family house on it, that will usually require some sort of entitlement. It's usually re- referred to as a site plan review or something along those lines. At the most basic level, a single family house will require that. Moving up from there, if you wanted to do as like a lot split, like a simple subdivision, that would require an entitlement. And it kind of keeps going up in there in terms of um you know, intensity of development all the way up, you know, to commercial buildings and regional malls and all of those things. So everything that is essentially development oriented is going to require an entitlement of some kind. And so when I say development, that's usually going to be some sort of vertical development coming up out of the ground that's going to trigger an entitlement of some kind. And by the way, Mike wrote literally the best article on the internet about all this stuff. So I'm going to link to it beneath this video. If you happen to be watching this on YouTube in that article, we listed out several different examples. I think one of them was putting in a road, that kind of thing. Is that just for like private roads? Cause when I think of a road, I don't think of like a vertical development necessarily, but that still could require entitlements. Yeah, absolutely. Like the road would be associated with the actual entitlement approval as a whole. So I gotcha. if you're doing like a subdivision that required a road off of the main access road, that would be part of the subdivision. That would be part of the entitlement. So yeah, that would be wrapped in together. Okay. Gotcha. And what is this entitlement? Entitlement process typically look like? Like what steps are involved? How long does it take? How bureaucratic is it? And I, I'm sure this is a extremely broad question. I'm sure it varies a lot depending on where you're doing this and what's required and what you're trying to develop. But any like 50,000 foot view of what the process looks like? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you're absolutely right. It does vary across the board and it does vary based on the type of project that you're working on. But let's just say, you know, a single family house, for example, on, on an existing lot that may take somewhere in the realm of, of four months to get through the, the entitlement process. And in terms of what the process looks like itself, generally what you're looking at doing first is you want to do like a pre-application meeting. And sometimes you'll do that before you even own or control the property, but you're going to go into the local jurisdiction. You're going to meet with their staff. You're going to have this pre-application meeting. You're going to give them a general idea as far as what you're proposing. You're going to try to figure out, are there any red flags that's going to kill my deal right from the outset? Mm -hmm. And you want to know that obviously, preferably before you actually close on the property, that's really the first key step. And sometimes, you know, you go to that step and it and it kills the deal. And that's good to know because then you can just move on to the next one. But if you kind of go through that part of the process and you're getting still green lights from the jurisdiction, then the next thing is the actual um, application submittal itself. And when you do the application submittal itself, it's really important to understand that you have to do a complete application package going right in on the day one. And the reason for that is there's a lot of states that have laws on the book that basically say you can submit this incomplete application and the jurisdiction has up to like 30 days to let you know that the actual application is incomplete. And during that time, they're not obligated to process your application. So theoretically, you could lose a month just sitting there waiting for them to determine whether or not your application is complete. So you want to be really, really clear about that. And, and they do have, you know, submittal checklists that kind of lay it down. You know, this is exactly the roadmap that you need to follow to be able to get a complete application. These are the materials that you need to submit and everything. So they do make it clear, but it is important to get that going. So once you submit that, then the next step is, is that they're going to actually go and route this out. They're going to send your project out all to the other affected divisions or departments within the city. So maybe it's like the fire department or engineering division or building and safety. All of this is really funneling through the planning division. So all your submittals will go to the planning 
and zoning division. They're going to route it out during this step to all those other divisions. And there's going to be a time period in which they have to review that, that project. And what they're going to do is they're going to come back to you maybe in about like four weeks, something around that range. They're going to have a set of comments and it's going to be, here's a list of things that you need to address that are issues with your proposed project. And when you get those comments back, now you're into the next phase where now the ball's in your court as the applicant. And now you have to address all of those comments. So it kind of becomes a punch list, so to speak. And you're going to be able to address all of those comments in a resubmittal package. And that resubmittal package now is going to go back to the planning division again. And hopefully at that point, you've addressed all their issues. Now, at this point, it's kind of where you can either progress in the process or you could kind of end up in this endless loop. Because if you don't address their comments, then they're going to come back to you and they're going to say, okay, you need to address these other outstanding comments. And you're going to keep going round and round until you actually address their issues. Mm -hmm. But assuming that you've addressed their issues, then the next step is, is that they're going to draft a set of conditions of approval. And those conditions of approval are going to be just that. It's going to say, hey, your project's approved, but there's certain conditions that need to be met. So going back to your previous example about the roadway, they're going to say, yeah, your subdivision, for example, is approved. However, one of the conditions is that you build out this roadway and here's the, the dimensions and here's all the development standards that are associated with building out that roadway. Way, and that's one of your conditions of approval. So mm -hmm. they'll have those listed there. And then once you review those conditions of approval and you accept those conditions of approval, you usually have to have a, a notarized document saying that you accept those conditions. Once you submit that um, approval to the, the planning division, at that point, now you have an approved project. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like a, a standard process for something that doesn't require a higher level review authority by like the planning commission or the city council. Yeah, it's funny. We're talking about this right now because I'm I'm literally right in the middle of a project that is going through the exact steps you're talking about. Where on the 21st of this month, so a couple of weeks from now, we're doing the official site plan review with the uh, the township, and it's just crazy how slow it is. Like it just it kind of blows my mind. At least with the township I'm working with, they need tons and tons of time to review this stuff. We basically put together a site plan for how we're going to develop this parcel and we have to submit it to the township and their civil engineer who then reviews it and makes sure that everything it makes sense with the township's rules. And then they come back to my civil engineer and they kind of hash it out. And, you know, if we don't get it done by the 21st of this month, guess what? We got to wait another month until they meet again. What I'm learning through this process is the importance of taking the initiative, like be the one to get on the phone and make the call. Don't assume that they've received anything. Don't assume that they're going to get back to you. Like just treat them like they're a child and really just yeah. hold their hand and make sure it all makes sense. Get their confirmation in writing. So there's no confusion about where things are at and what still needs to happen. And if you kind of go into it with, with that mentality, I think it helps as opposed to just like sending an email and assuming that they got it and everything makes sense on their end. Cause something's probably going to go wrong if you do that. <laughs> 100%. I mean, you hit so many great points there, you know, and it's true. I always tell people it's like a game of tennis, you know, and you, you got to keep the ball in their court, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So if you get stuff that's on you, you got to take care of it quick, get it back to them. But you, you said you can't make any assumptions. You have to go in and really, like you said, hold their hand and not to speak too negatively, but there's really not a, a motivation or, or anything for them to really push your project forward. Yeah. The only time that there's a motivation for them is really when you have to play the politics side of it and go to like a planning commissioner or a, or a council member or somebody like that and have them push on their staff to get your project moving forward. Because yeah. without that, you know, a lot of times you're going to run into to exactly what you're experiencing. Yeah. And I know 
like in my particular deal that I'm working on, when I bought it, it was a residential parcel of land and I got it rezoned to commercial. That was the first step. And now the next step is what I'm doing right now. The site plan review, like getting the entitlements. So zoning versus entitlements, they're not the same thing, but I feel like a lot of people understandably could confuse the two and think they're synonymous somehow. So what is the difference between zoning and entitlements? So if this whole thing were a game, so to speak, mm -hmm. zoning would be the rules to the game. And then the entitlements would be like you winning the game, you know, like that's like the, the reward at the end of it. So zoning is kind of like the regulations and it tells you, here's how property is to be developed within this jurisdiction. And then the entitlement itself is the actual approval. It's the vested right that's granted to the property owner to develop their property in the fashion in which it was approved for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so those are the two distinctions or the one distinction. Yeah. So it's kind of like zoning is like a big wide bucket. Like you can do something commercial here, something along the lines. And then the entitlements is like, you can do this very specific thing. Like we've seen exactly what you plan to do and that is okay. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. That's correct. What if I get a site plan reviewed and approved, but then something changes to that site plan. It's like, oh, I actually want to move the building over here now, or sure. I want to use gravel instead of asphalt or something like that. Like at what point do you have to then go back and get another approval on that change? So it depends on the degree or the severity of the change, you know? And so most oftentimes within the zoning code itself, they'll have parameters that are set to address that issue. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it might be a percentage thing. So it says, if you change up to 10% of the project, and that's very vague, but it'll say 10% of the project, it could be done administratively. So there's no other review process. It's almost like a, a memo to file type of situation. However, if you go above 10 and less than 50% of a change, then it's something else. Mm -hmm. And then you know, more than 50%, you have to go back through the whole process again. Yeah. So it's a, it's a matter of, of the degree of severity. And then you're also looking to get the interpretation of that, of the actual staff at the county or city. Mm -hmm. What would happen to a person if, say in my situation, if I got a change from residential to commercial, and then I just started building something without getting any entitlements, like, would there be fines involved or I don't know, like what's, what recourse does the township or city have against somebody who does that kind of thing? So usually that would be considered unpermitted construction because you can't even get a building permit without the entitlements. So the way that it, the whole development process works is that you have to get your planning approval first. That's your entitlement. Then you'll usually have to get your um, approvals from engineering division for your grading or your dry and wet utilities. And then the last thing is you're going to building and safety for your building permit. And that's what most people are usually familiar with. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get a building permit issued without getting an engineering or planning approval. Mm -hmm. um, but if you go and you try to start building, you know, without those, then yeah, it becomes like a code enforcement case. Um, it's unpermitted construction. Theoretically, what they'll do is they can do a stop work. So they can put um, a stop work on the property. And if somebody were to continue building, technically in most jurisdictions, it's a misdemeanor and they can have the sheriff or somebody out there and try to enforce that. Mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately it could be fines that are that are levied against the property. And then ultimately from there, it could be even a lien placed against the property or they can actually could technically take legal action against the property owner. It usually doesn't end up being in that 
that degree, it's usually resolved far, far before that. But yeah. technically, you usually have that authority. I think some people have this idea that if I buy land, like it's my land, I can do whatever I want with it. Nobody can tell me what to do. It seems like that's almost never true. Somebody needs to give you the thumbs up before you're actually allowed to do anything significant. My wife and I are watching the show. What's it called? Life Below Zero, where it, yeah. it shows these people in Alaska. One of the things they always talk about why they live up there is because like nobody tells them what to do and they live truly in the middle of nowhere, like way far away from any civilization. It makes me wonder, like, do they even have zoning up there? Like, can you literally do anything and nobody's going to come and because like you're so far away, it's like it doesn't even bother anybody. Yeah, there's some areas that, that don't. I mean, the most notorious, you know, in terms of urbanized areas, the city of um, Houston is actually yeah, zoning regulations. And mm-hmm. but I think the thing that's important is like everybody understand that just because there's no zoning, it doesn't mean that there's no like restrictions because it can come from various places. Right. I mean. Mm even if there's no zoning on a property, for example, even um, Mobile County, Alabama, I was just looking out there and, and out in the unincorporated area there, they have no zoning out there. But that just means that there's just not a zoning control. So you could have actually restrictions that come from CCNRs. You can have restrictions in terms of there's um, notes on the subdivision map itself that can restrict certain things. And then it also depends on like what you're proposing to do. Just because there's no zoning doesn't mean you can have like a helipad right in the middle of this property. You're going to have to deal with FAA. Bummer, right? You'd have to deal with FAA. So it depends on kind of sometimes your use too. That might trigger um, regulations and stuff. Mm -hmm. So just because there's no zoning doesn't mean there's no like constraints or controls and you can do absolutely anything. Mm -hmm. So, but again, the more rural you are, obviously the more apt there is an opportunity for that. Yeah. Do you know what a typical cost is to get entitlements? Like if you just buy a property and you want to get entitlements to build, I don't know, a house or whatever, fill in the blank. Like what kind of costs should a person be thinking about before they even start going down this road? Sure. So like in terms of the types of costs, there's going to be entitlement fees that are paid to the city or the county. So that's one type of cost. Mm -hmm. And again, to vary across the, you know, across jurisdictions. What they're supposed to do is they're supposed to charge a fee that is commensurate with their cost recovery. So it's not supposed to be a profit center. It's supposed to be associated to the time that staff spends on that mm-hmm. typical project. In that sense, it does vary because obviously, you know, salaries in California are going to be different than salaries in Mississippi, for example. And so mm-hmm. um, as a result, those fees do vary, you know, so that's one type of fee. Then it's going to be your professional services fees. And that's going to be maybe like your civil engineer, depending on the project and architect. As you get into more complex projects, you may end up having consultants that are like environmental consultants, you know, biological noise consultants, things like that. But at its most basic level, just say just for like a single family house, you're really going to be looking at a civil engineer and you're probably going to be looking at an architect as well. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, if you're not going to do the work yourself or do the project management yourself, you may need to have a project manager that's involved too. For a single family house, you know, it's to give you a ballpark, you know, like single family house in the jurisdiction I live in for the entitlements, it's probably going to cost you in the realm of like $2,000 for the fee. And then you're probably going to be into it for another five to 10 for the civil and for the architect as well. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like a general ballpark. And again, that's just for a basic single family house. Yeah. I know just to give people an example for myself with the project I'm working on, I've probably committed to 35,000 bucks 
just in various due diligence and site plan and fees to the county and that kind of stuff. But not all of that was required necessarily. Some of it was just stuff that I chose to do. Uh, like for example, the phase one environmental, I mean, that's wise to do, but I don't think the township would say you have to get a phase one. It's just, I chose to do that. But like for my civil engineer, for the work that they've done just on the site plan and engineering, I've paid them 12,000 bucks for that. And then the township is, I think it's a couple thousand dollars there for the zoning change. That was 600 bucks. I feel like there's a couple other things too. Like, like I got a geotechnical investigation and a topographical survey. I guess needless to say, in my situation, probably like 15 to 20 grand is what I have into it so far. I wouldn't have been comfortable paying for any of that if I wasn't already really sure that this was going to work. It was a deal that made no sense. Kind of like what Mike was saying earlier, where the first step is to have this conversation with the municipality to find out like, am I barking up the wrong tree? Is there any hope of me doing this? If it just doesn't make sense, they're going to tell you pretty quickly that it doesn't make sense and why. Or if they say, well, maybe there's a 60 or 70% chance this will work, but I don't know. You could then ask, okay, well, why not hundred percent? Like what makes you unsure about that? And really just figure out what the level of uncertainty is. To give you an idea, as far as like the difference in prices, you're saying a $600 for a zone change where I'm at you actually have to pay closer to $42,000 for a zone change. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. That was a, why? Why is that so much? That's in California, right? Right. It's in California. And, you know, so everything that's associated with that. But one of the reasons is, is that the way that the zoning code works in a lot of states is that, or a lot of jurisdictions is that it's also tied to their general plan. And so when you change the zoning, you actually have to change the general plan at the same time. Their perspective, you're changing two documents at once. I see. And so it requires a different level of review and everything. And so that's how they can that. But still, $42,000 is pretty excessive. And I know in my situation, the 600 bucks again, that's just for the zoning change, nothing else. But it's also, it's a township that, I don't want to say it's out in the boonies necessarily, but it's, it is absolutely not like Southern California or any place in California, really, you know, it's in West Michigan. It's not part of any big city or anything like that. So the whole township office is basically like a giant barn. <laughs> so it's a, it's, it's not a super complicated thing. So it, the cost probably does have a lot to do with the different levels of bureaucracy you have to go through to get the changes done. Absolutely. That's a good segue to another question I had was when you're talking about 42,000 bucks, that's a heck of a roll of the dice to buy a property thinking you can do this and not actually knowing if you can use it for your intended use. So, you know, that was a really helpful initial thing we talked about, about having a conversation with the planning division, first of all, just to find out what the chances are, but that's still not a guarantee. And how does a person get comfortable doing this? Like, should they just have a plan B exit plan? Like if it doesn't work out, I can do this other thing and just resell it. Or do they get an option on the property and use that time to try to change it and then just walk away from the purchase if it doesn't work out? Or how do people navigate that? Yeah. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is, is that people think that projects get denied all the time mm -hmm. because they see that in the news or they see that in the paper or whatever. And they think that projects are getting denied left and right. The reality is, is that most projects will actually either die very early on in the process, like the pre-application meeting or something like that. Or what happens is all the issues get worked out and, and kind of massaged as it goes through the process to where the point where everybody that's making the decision has some comfort level with it. Mm -hmm. And so that being said, if you're getting green lights going in, that doesn't mean that there's going to be not issues as you go throughout. 
but there is a likelihood that you're going to get some resolution because you're going to work those things out. There's certain things that they have that are called findings. There's certain findings that need to be made to be able to approve certain entitlements, you know, and they, they change and they're different based on jurisdiction. But for example, one of the biggest ones is like, hey, is what they're proposing consistent with the general plan for the city or sometimes called the comprehensive plan? You know, is it something that is consistent with the city's vision for what they want to see? Mm-hmm. And if you can make that finding, then then you're in a good place, you know. And and so if you can make the series of findings that are required, that's a really good way to kind of get you some certainty too. The other thing I'd say is that you're right, there ultimately is no absolute 100% that it's going to get approved. You know, what you'll often see is that you'll probably see the project gets delayed in terms of its processing timeframe as you're trying to work out those issues. The goal of the whole thing on the front end is to be able to identify the real, the project killers, the big red flag stuff that, that's going to really kill the project. If you can identify and get over those, and you're in towards the end of the process, you're talking about the amount of landscaping required, or you're talking about the architecture, for example, those are all things that can be worked out. They're all very important, but they certainly can be worked out. Mm-hmm. So it's about doing your due diligence. It's about being very clear about um, what you're wanting to do, communicating well with um, city staff, getting staff the things that they're asking for as quickly as you can get it, because that's going to help push your project along too. Yeah. Do you see people getting options on properties to buy them time to yeah. do this? Like, is that a common strategy or do people just buy them with uh, see, hope that it'll work out? Right. Yeah. I see more often the case. I do see the option strategy sometimes, but more often than not, the one thing that is a little bit unique when you're dealing with development is, is that it's very common to put in an entitlement contingency. And so whether you, so if you think it's going to take you six months, a year, 18 months, whatever it is to get your project entitled, you'll usually include some sort of entitlement contingency that says that you can get out of the contract in the event that the actual entitlements are not approved. Some owners don't like that because they feel that their property is tied up during yeah. that time. But, you know, a lot of instances, you know, you're talking about property that's been sitting for a long time. And so they're willing to kind of roll the dice with you and put that contingency in. Sometimes what you'll see too is a kind of a hybrid approach where they'll have benchmarks that are associated to that as well, where they'll say, you know, um, and yeah, we'll do this contingency, but within a um, hundred days, we're going to ask that a portion of your earnest money goes hard. Mm, and then sure. another hundred days, we'll ask another, another portion of it. So it kind of phases in over time. Do some sellers want a higher price in return for waiting like a year to get this kind of thing done? Yeah. I mean, that's part of the negotiation too. You know, mm-hmm. I was just dealing with one recently that that was exactly what it was. It was just a conversation, a conversation over $50,000 on a, a property that's over, you know, 1.4 million. And it's like, it's a situation where we're just negotiating that number. You mm-hmm. know, they want more money. We want more time on the due diligence side without the money going hard. And so the, you're getting down to that final nuance of getting that contract done, you know, but yeah, sure. you'll see that oftentimes too, because from their perspective, they're taking a risk. And so they feel that they should be compensated for it. And I, it's hard to disagree with that. On the other side though, like if you can't get the entitlements, it's literally not worth as much as they want. So it's like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing too, that I've told people in the past is that if you feel as though there's enough value in it, if you feel that, you know, that there's the possibility of getting this project entitled and you want to charge that premium, then you should go get it entitled yourself. Yeah. You know, you should go take that on yourself. It's like a, it's like an apartment owner that wants to charge you a price based off of pro forma numbers. Yeah, exactly. 
you know, I'm not going to pay that price. If you want that price, then go, you know, add value and do all the changes that you need to do. Then we'll talk. I'm not buying a stabilized asset. I'm buying some opportunity to add value. Yeah. So that's my take on it a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. I know in my case, I normally would never do this kind of thing, but I, I had bought my property as a residential one, just going out on a limb, assuming it would work out. But the reason I was okay with that is because I had a solid plan B. If it didn't work out, I could sell it for probably more, even as a residential property. So it's like, either way, I could kind of come out ahead because the price was right. But yeah, you know, once that price starts getting up there, that complicates things a little bit in terms of, you know what uh, the buyer can accept. Sure. The one thing I'd say too, is that, you know, I'm always talking about adding value and most land investors are out there, like you're mentioning early on, are buying at that really good discount. And I'm not advocating my approach versus that. I'm saying do both, Yeah. you know, go out there and, and buy at the greatest value that you can buy. And then just know that you have the opportunity to create better margins by doing this or something yeah. else. I know a lot of the land flippers who just buy lots, do nothing to them and then resell them for more. Like what should they be looking at in terms of spotting opportunities for like, Hey, maybe I could get entitlements here. If there's an obvious highest and best use for it, but it's not entitled yet, they could do that. Or I don't know, like what should they look for in terms of, is it worth all the hassle? to do entitlements for this? Yeah, I think, you know, if you're looking at it from a rezoning perspective, if you're looking at a residential property that's adjacent to a bunch of commercially zoned property, then that's a really good tell that, hey, this is an opportunity to rezone this one, the commercial. What you're never gonna see though, is you're never gonna see a jurisdiction approve what they call spot zoning. Mm -hmm. So if you're, you know, in a whole line of properties that are all, you know, zoned residential and you want yours to be this commercial island, they're not gonna approve it. So it has mm-hmm. to be consistent with the surrounding land uses. So in terms of rezoning, that's one thing I'd look for. Um, like subdivisions, a big thing is just looking for a large acreage, right? So, I mean, the mm-hmm. larger acreage you have, the better. Um, if you, especially if you're looking at large acreage in um, close to urbanized settings, because mm-hmm. in general, you know, you're going to have smaller lot size requirements as you go into the urban core. When that happens and you come across larger acreage closer to the urban core, there's a greater propensity for there to be a subdivision opportunity. Yeah, it almost kind of reminds me of somebody who says, I'm going to put ceramic tile in this kitchen of my house before I sell it because that's going to make it better. But maybe the buyer doesn't want ceramic tile. Maybe they want something else. Maybe they don't want granite countertops or green paint, even though you think it's great. So it's, it almost seems a little presumptuous to like go through the steps of getting it entitled when you don't actually know if that's the end use, unless it's like super obvious, like there is one use that makes sense for this and it's not currently there. So let's get it there. The one thing that I advocate is to really kind of work the process in reverse and try to identify a buyer before you even go into this. Hmm, Sure. So, so if you go and you just using the home building idea, you know, you're going to have a variety of, you know, local home builders. And I'm not talking about the the big, you know, DR Hortons and parties and these big guys. I'm talking about more regional builders, you know. And so if you are looking at a property and you're kind of doing your due diligence and you think that there's an opportunity to do a value play in that, I would just contact the local builders and just say, hey, look, I have a potential opportunity. This is what I'm looking at. What would you actually buy this property for? And the, the way they the way, the way that they work at it is they kind of do what's called like a residual land value type of analysis, and they're looking at it going, well, we know that the property and it's built out as a single family house, it's going to sell for five hundred thousand dollars. 
We know that our costs of construction are maybe like 60, 62%. We know that we're looking at a fixed profit margin for our business of 10 to 12%. So they go down and they work that out and they can figure out what their max is that they can actually pay for that property. Mm-hmm. So they'll know that going in. And if they can kind of give you that idea, then that tells you a couple of things. One is their demand. And then two, what the price point is, because that'll help you in terms of what you try to get it at. When I was talking with uh, Josiah in episode 105 of the podcast, he did something very similar to that. It wasn't for the purpose of getting entitlements, but he did find a builder and just get a really specific idea of like, what would you pay for this? And kind of use that to back into his offer price. So um, it's a good strategy, especially if there is a obvious big builder nearby that would you know, be able to use that kind of property. If I have a property and I think it makes sense to get the entitlements, but I don't want to do any of the work. I just want to find somebody and pay them to jump in and do it for me. Is there such a thing? Like, are there companies that do this? Or I know, for example, my civil engineer, like they do a lot of stuff. It's not just civil engineering. Like they'll go to the township for you, change zoning for you, and they'll do surveys for you and environmental stuff and geotechnical and all this stuff. So do you find a big engineering firm like that, that offers an array of services like this, or is there another kind of specialist that can do this kind of work for you? Yeah. You know, that, that happens a lot where it's like the civil engineer or the architect will take on that role, but I'll refer to as like the project manager where they're going in and working um, face to face or kind of the face of the project with the city. Mm -hmm. And so that certainly happens as you get to like, when you're in like the single family type of project or you're getting to smaller subdivisions, but as you get kind of more um, advanced when you're getting to like rezoning and things like that, then you start looking at really needing um, a project manager that's maybe like a land use consultant specializes in those kind of things because it's a different it's a different game at that point. It's not just the technical side of it. It's also um, understanding land use in general, understanding the zoning code, and then also being able to work the relationships mm-hmm. you know necessary to kind of help get your project through. So that land use consultant really becomes your project manager and they become really important at that phase. Who are all the different players that should be on your team in terms of helping this happen? Do you need an attorney or a surveyor or a civil engineer? Like who are all the different people that are typically involved in this kind of thing? Yeah, I would certainly hold off on the attorney for as long as you can because it's the cost associated. But then also, if they're not needed, sometimes they, they they kind of muddy the waters a little bit, truthfully. But what I would say is that as you get into the really complex one, it's certainly wise to have one on retainer. And there are attorneys that kind of do this project management role as well. So if that's something that's a, you know appropriate for your project, you can certainly do that. But um, with almost any project, you're going to need a civil engineer, or if you're doing some subdivisions in some jurisdictions, they don't require a civil engineer. You can get away with just a land surveyor. Some types of subdivisions in Texas, for example, and there's other places as well, they just require a land surveyor, not a civil engineer. And then oftentimes you'll need an architect. So I'd say like the big two are really the civil engineer and the architect. As a project gets more complex, then you might have specialty consultants that come in based on the circumstances. I'm curious, how risky is it? Like, have you seen a lot of cases of people who went out on a limb, bought the property, did all the work, spent all the money, and it still failed, and they just had to hang their head and walk away? Like, how often does that kind of thing happen? I don't see it happen where they are turned away, like they submit for like the actual entitlement application, and they find out in the middle somewhere that it's just not going to work, and they turn around and, and, and walk away from it. Mm-hmm. What I see very often is I see people will buy property 
not knowing what it can be used for and they make assumptions based on surrounding land uses mm -hmm. and then they find out that the zoning code doesn't allow for their use and there's really no way to rezone out of it there's no way to get any kind of change the the jurisdiction's not supportive of it and so they end up in a scenario where they have an illegal or unpermitted land use and now you're back in that code enforcement conversation again yeah and it can get kind of ugly in those situations yeah, I guess what I don't love about the process is that I'm somebody who likes to bet on sure things like there is no way I'm going to lose on this because it's worth way more than I'm paying for it on closing day. It can only go up like that's kind of my mentality usually, but I think you just kind of have to let go of that a little bit because like you have to spend money to get the people involved. And you can certainly have these conversations that will be very revealing ahead of time that don't cost anything. Just asking the township or the city, like, am I crazy for doing this or could this work out? And they'll tell you, but it's still not a hundred percent certainty. Like there's still money that has to be spent and it's possible that there will be waste there. But I think that's just the name of the game. When you start getting out of that hardcore land flipping space yeah, I agree with everything you said. I mean, it's certainly not 100% certain. There's ways to mitigate or manage the risk or at least you know, decrease it to a level where somebody's comfortable with it. But I would just say that if you cannot find a way to do that to where you're comfortable, then it's certainly not something to engage in, you know. And and I'm my big point is that it's not for everybody. Um, there's not any part of real estate that is for for everybody, you know, and everybody has their own um, unique attributes and skills and something people are great at flipping property, you know, and are rehabbers and everything. And that's awesome. You know, and um, some people have a different mindset that's maybe more oriented to like legal stuff. And so that would be somebody that would be really, you know, into this kind of, but you're right. You can't eliminate the risk. And if it's something that you're not comfortable with, you know, you surely shouldn't, shouldn't engage in it. I know there's this whole concept of, you know, when you get land entitlements, it does add certainty to what a person can do with that property. Is there a way to quantifiably predict how much value that certainty will add to a property? Or is it kind of wishy-washy? Like it just depends on who the buyer is. And It is. If you're going to go from it from the perspective of not identifying at least a type of buyer, then you're going to kind of have a little bit of a problem. So that's why it's important to kind of work a little bit backwards in it, you know? So I was giving the single family house, for example, before, but even if you go to like a, an assisted living facility, you know, you really want to have a, an idea for what those are actually selling for once built. You want to have an idea for what that's going to be. So that way you're going to back into it. So it's, it's a lot of kind of reverse engineering. So that way you can have an idea as far as what it's going to be. And then at that point, it's again, what kind of deal you can get on the acquisition side too. Do you have any concrete examples of when a property's value increased from X to X because the entitlements were there? Or is it, is it never quite that cut and dry? Um, I, I see it after the fact. So like my favorite example is, is something that's uh, like a change of use permit where um, somebody went in, they had to get a conditional use permit on an existing commercial building. And basically that building was vacant. It used to be a commercial, or sorry, a furniture store at one time. The furniture store went out of business. Now that space is vacant for a year or two. And they wanted to put in like um, a flooring business, which seems like it's very similar but again, these are the weird nuances in the codes in each jurisdiction. They went and had to get a conditional use permit to be able to allow for that flooring use to go in. So the investment group went in, they bought this property for, I think it was about $650,000. 
they put about $25,000 into it in terms of like the entitlements because there was no architect needed. It was an existing building. There wasn't any civil engineering that was needed because it was an existing building. It was just basically the cost of the land use consultant and stuff like that. So they put in $25,000. They go around and sell it to um, like a lumber liquidators type of business and they sold it for 1.2. Hmm. So, I mean, they're into it for 675, sell it for 1.2. That's a pretty home run kind of example. Yeah, it's a great example. Uh, You know, but, you know, it gives you an idea of what is actually possible. Yeah, no, that's awesome. You know, other than the obvious benefits for the landowner or the future buyer who's going to buy this thing, are there any other ancillary benefits for the community or the neighbors or the township or city or anything like that? Sure. You know, for the city, there's definitely benefits in terms of added revenue for taxes. So if the property increases in value, there's going to be an increased tax um, revenue that comes from that. Um, If you get commercial uses in there, there's going to be increased sales tax revenue that'll come from there as well. Then obviously, if you're going to be improving one building, your neighbors, you know, hopefully are going to feel as though they're supportive of it because it has opportunity to improve the value of their properties as well. Mm -hmm. And that's a two-sided coin too, because if it's a, a use that is obnoxious for some reason, you know, or impactful, then it could have the alternate result in terms of being like a negative impact. But that's what the whole planning process is about identifying and mitigating potentially negative impacts so theoretically by developing a property you're improving the value of the other um, properties as well that are surrounding and i think the last thing i'd say is just more from like an intrinsic point of view is that by doing this you know you feel as though you're kind of having a hand in creating positive change within your community you know you have ability to do something that's positive. The most clear-cut example, you know, when I'm here in California, we're going through a massive housing shortage and the state is struggling to find ways to create legislation to streamline this development process. And so the things that, that I'm talking about has the opportunity of putting more housing on the ground. And obviously there's just like an intrinsic reward that's associated to that too, mm-hmm. the benefit of, of housing people as well. And so that's something that I try to push too. Yeah, I can't say it's, uh, I mean, I'm not even close to the finish line on my project, but it is fun to just think about like, I'm not just flipping something, like I'm actually changing it. You know, it's similar to a house flipper who buys a dump. And when they're done with it, it's beautiful. Like being able to actually see that change is fun. I mean, that's why they make TV shows about this stuff because it's cool to see the transformation and cool to see something go from something that's not that cool to really amazing at the end. So it's fun to just be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. It just kind of allows you to be creative and find nuances that are within the the rules themselves, you know, and, and finding ways to do things that are creative and have a positive impact. And so that's definitely a benefit too. I know I mentioned earlier on, you've been doing this for about 20 years. What exactly has your role been? Like, how do you know all this stuff? Yeah. You know, I started out actually working inside the planning division of a local city. And I okay. did that both here in California and in Texas. That's how I kind of got the experience of what this whole zoning and entitlement world is like. And mm-hmm. then just gradually I'd have people that I worked with internally. They'd say, Hey, 
I'm working on a project in another city, you know, is it something that you can help out with, you know? And so I just started helping out on the side and it just started kind of growing from there. I started doing that kind of half and half for a long time to the point where I could do it full time. And that was the whole goal, obviously. During that whole process, I started flipping land myself. And then to the day where I'm at right now, as I do a lot of kind of consulting work, helping them, you know, land investors, finding these opportunities and actually bringing them through to fruition. And so- of in my evolution. You have a website or, or a service where you help people do this kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, you know, I do. You know, on our website, um, our company is called Tolosa Property Group. So it's T-O-L-O-S-A propertygroup.com. And on that website, you know, we have a few different things. We have some courses that we've done. Um, we have a lot of free information that's on there on our blog as well. But we also have consulting services that we make available for this kind of thing. So it could just be one-off consulting where somebody just has a question, they want to talk over a certain property, or if they even want to talk about like project management roles and stuff like that, there's those kind of things as well. And Mike, we have a version of his course about rezoning properties in the Land Investing Masterclass. And it was actually very helpful to me when I was going through the, the rezoning process. I followed a lot of what he said in there and the experience matched up very much to what he said it would be like. And at least for me, there's something very intimidating when you've just never done this before. You don't know what you're doing and you have to fill out all these weird, confusing forms and have all these conversations that you're just kind of fumbling around. You don't know what you're doing. And then you have to sit in front of this zoning and planning committee and they just grill you and without having some kind of guidance on that or just having somebody set my expectations it would have seemed a lot more insurmountable but kind of going into it and just knowing what to expect goes a long way your website is telosapropertygroup.com that's right yeah i'll include a link to that uh, beneath this video or in the show notes depending on where you're watching or listening to this yeah mike is there anything else we should know about just the general subject of land entitlements or does that cover pretty much everything? You know, that really covers everything. The thing I just really tell people is that, you know, entitlements provide certainty and that certainty is what creates value. And that's the whole thing about entitlements. Yeah. It's one thing to own land, but when you don't actually know what that's usable for, it uh, creates this kind of information gap about like, is this going to be viable to me or not? And getting that nailed down goes a long way. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, Mike. Talk to you later. Thank you. Take care. See you.